Welcome to Pullback, the podcast that digs into the ethics behind everyday things. I'm Kristen Pugh, and I'm here with Kyla Hewson. Hello. And today we are joined by Abdul Malik, um, who is an Edmonton-based journalist, screenwriter, and photographer, as well as co-host of the Off Court podcast. Um, you can listen to the first two seasons of that on, uh, I guess, most platforms of choice. Uh, Abdul, you can correct me if that's wrong. Yeah, we're uh, we're on hiatus right now, unfortunately. But yeah. <laughs> We are also, I forgot to say, Kyla, we're members of the Harbinger Media Network of Podcasts, which uh, the Off Court Podcast is also a member of. Hooray! Hey! <laughs> it's still pretty fresh for us. It's very exciting. <laughs> so how's it going, Abdul? Uh, it's going well. I uh, Thank you for reminding me I need to change my bio. <laughs> um, <laughs> I've uh, officially dropped photography and, and screenwriting full-time uh, as of January, so that's a uh, incredible life, ch- like, life change that I need to put into my uh put into my info for andre but yeah like um i'm doing pretty good i'm doing pretty good uh everything (laughs) all things considered it's bright and early on a sunday morning and um i'm excited to be here i'm excited to talk as an avid um sneakerhead like really avid sneakerhead (laughs) like three 350 odd pairs wow (laughs) is that what your podcast is about like (laughs) no (laughs) sports guy (laughs) sneakers are sports things I guess yeah, so. <laughs> oh, they are. But yeah, like the, uh, you know, the ethics of, of trade goods, uh, supply chain management, things like that, you know, like, and I'm fairly involved with like the Writers Guild of Canada and, you know, service-based freelance work and stuff like that. Yeah, I'm excited to talk about it because it definitely all like feeds into my interest, right? In terms of what you all talk about. <laughs> Kyla and I, I don't think we've ever done a sports episode before, so I'm really excited about this Olympics one. I think it'll probably... Like a lot of the same issues that there are with the Olympics really extend to other kinds of sporting events. So I imagine it will have applicability to things like the World Cup and stuff like that. But I guess I first want to start by asking, uh, what's your uh, favorite sport (laughs) and why? Basketball. I'm a big basketball guy. I grew up on I grew up on the, you know, the 2000s Lakers. um, And obviously I'm from Toronto. I live in Edmonton now but you know i grew up also a raptors fan you know it's it's for like a young south asian growing up in like canada i feel especially in in toronto you know like me um hockey is like a fairly inaccessible sport for most people unless you're you know super loaded yeah Um, and soccer (laughs) just doesn't cut it because there wasn't especially when i was growing up there wasn't the same kind of popularity around soccer like there is you know happening right now actually um like right this second uh but yeah like (laughs) yeah it's one of those things where like basketball uh was very like inclusive sport for us and you know it's it's interesting like the fandom in canada is is remarkably different from the fandom for other basketball teams and stuff like that. So yeah, like um that that's my sport of choice. Nice. <laughs> Christian, what's your favorite sport? Isn't it hockey? Uh, it's my favorite sport to watch for sure. Um but I also like silly sports. <laughs> <laughs> like, like like Quidditch? Cricket or <laughs> <laughs> bubble soccer, inner tube water polo, the silliest sports uh, that are better than uh, <laughs> <lessons>. <laughs> Uh, you should check out the ISL, the International Swimming League. It's like a, an NFL or NBA style league for um, for swimming. Wow. Yeah, it's currently in a huge dispute with the International Swimming Federation, which sees it as a threat to its power. And the crazy thing is they're both evil, um, but it's a lot of fun. Like it's very it's very glitzy and the talent is actually ferociously good. And if you're in North America, all of their events are free on YouTube for now, which is great. All right. <laughs> Love it. 
Kyla, do you have a favorite sport? <laughs> Figure skating. Ooh. Yeah, never been any scandals in that sport. <laughs> do you uh, do you do what me and my partner do and ship figure skaters during the Olympics? Oh my god, like yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only sport I watch during the Winter Olympics. Honestly, like I know, very controversial, but like I'll be, I'll, I'm all about that figure skating. I think it's the most technical, the most difficult, and the most beautiful thing to watch. And everything <laughs> else can just go sit down. All right, we're here to talk about the Olympics, the 2022 Beijing uh, Winter Olympics. Uh, they're just around the corner for us recording, but will have started by the time this episode uh, goes out. And my first question to you, Abdul, is will you be watching uh, <laughs> the Olympics this year? I mean, my hot take on the Olympics is that any Olympic event is no less ethical than any other Olympic event, um, like as a comprehensive sort of hegemonic institution the ioc is uh not only corrupt but like corrupt and evil and just an absolute <laughs> an absolute just like misery machine for the entire world so the answer is yes um <laughs> the answer is fuck it sure <laughs> yeah it's one of those things where like i i actually really enjoy the idea of the olympics the actualization of them is ugly but like yeah like we can get into it uh, in a bit, but like, you know, a boycott of one Olympic Games in favor of another sort of doesn't see the forest from the trees um, is sort of my, uh, my, yeah, my sort of thoughts on it. Gotcha. All right. So um, I'm curious because I know basically nothing about the IOC. <laughs> so tell us, tell us why they're bad. <laughs> so the IOC is this effectively like nepotism patronage, uh, patronage style organization that has memberships across you know, they incorporate members from uh, all the international federations of sport, right? Because every major sport and most minor ones have an international federation. And the IOC exists to enrich the IOC, um, right? They sell <laughs> this idea of prestige and, you know, what the Olympics represent. They organize the games um, and they will take bribes, kickbacks, you know, anything. They will have these like rules uh, around hosting the Olympics that devastate cities, um, there's obviously like immense corruption, bribery, kickbacks sort of within the organization itself. And they just don't really give a shit about human human rights, about gentrification, about the effect of the environmental impact of hosting the Olympics and things like that. Right. Like they are very specifically there to enrich themselves uh, at every level and everything about the Olympics and the way countries bid for the Olympics, the way the uh, games are executed um sort of represents that yeah do you mind walking us through sort of how that bidding process works <laughs> hopefully that's not too granular a question no it's not too granular a question right like different different cities bid on it and they present their plans and the ioc members uh, obviously vote on it right which is where the whole kickback thing comes in but the ioc has uh they've relaxed them in recent years uh due to the fact that it was just it was simply untenable from an optics perspective right but they have these like goals of who's what needs to happen in a bid for the bid to go through right and it's things like you need to build x amount of new stadiums you need to have broadcast plans and like these sorts of ways to promote the olympics as part of it right you need to pay x y and z and venue construction needs to venue construction is a is a huge one right um and then different countries especially like you know countries like 
say China, right, which have a less than stellar reputation on a global scale. I'm not saying this happened, right? But like uh, countries that are looking to rehabilitate their reputation or sort of make a global impact or make a global statement, right? That's where a lot of um, kickbacks and stuff do come in Um, (laughs) and things like that. Like, you know, we're talking IOC members getting hotels, whatever they want, going places, you know, just suitcases of money and things like that. And it, it ostensibly it exists to promote internationalism, but like everything it does is with a focus on how can we enrich ourselves at the, you know, quite literal human expense of anyone else involved in the games from the athletes, right, to all the way down to like the workers uh, and the people who just live in these cities and countries. Um, yeah, the bidding process is horrific. Um, and it's it's nice because a lot of cities in the last couple of years, and that's one of the reason they that's one of the reasons that they started walking back the venue construction rule, uh, among other things, where a lot of cities have just voluntarily or through referendums elected to not submit bids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Calgary did that recently, right? Yeah, absolutely. Which is wicked because, <laughs> yeah, like people are starting to come around on like, oh, the Olympics are are devastating. And, you know, almost no Olympic Games have been have been profitable or a net good for any city um, from like Brazil's abandoned stadiums to like to the mass displacement of people before those games. I wrote for Canadian Dimension a while ago. I also wrote about like the way that the Olympics promote a security state, right? Like they are, they are one of the ways that you test out, well, sports in general, right? But they're one of the ways that they test out all sorts of surveillance tech and things like that. That's interesting. I've never thought about that before. <laughs> yeah, like uh, Beijing is is asking athletes right now to download an app that will just it's like ostensibly to to be like a vaccine passport, but it's it, the back end is so open that they're just going to track everything. And so the I think the Canadian government is issuing burner phones to the athletes so that they can leave their real phones at home. Like what? It's not just that. It's like even in something like um, I'm trying to remember which games was the Athens games where, you know, the Beijing thing is very front facing. But for example, like, uh, you know, the first Super Bowl after 9-11 and the next Olympic Games were two of the ways that they piloted facial recognition, surveillance and passive audio technology. Or um, at the 2004 games, there was the C4I apparatus, which is uh, developed by an American defense a contractor sake, which uh, it stands for command control communication and integration. It cost 255 million euros to develop most of that bankrolled by the Greek government uh, as part of the security system for the games. And now it's being sold to countries the world over, right? Like Saudi Arabia bought it. Uh, there was a recent agreement where uh, C4I was licensed to U.S. Army forces stationed in South Korea, yeah, it's it's the passive surveillance mechanism and the, the, the layer no one talks about in the Olympics is the the underlayer that happens at any major event, which is the the marketplace, right? This is a place where, where the rich and powerful will come and sell each other new tech and stuff like that. Just like the reason Calgary Stampede, for example, still exists, right? We're talking sporting events, it is is because it is the largest 
agricultural sciences marketplace in the world, right? That's where people buy like bull semen for $4 million for their herds and things like that. Or companies can come and, and sell, you know, genetically modified beans or whatever to farmers. It's, it's a marketplace. And what most of us see that's public facing is the level above that, right? The games, the <laughs> stampede, the parade, yeah, the pancake <laughs> breakfast, the endless fucking pancake breakfasts, right? <laughs> so yeah, like that's like, you know, the Olympics, every angle of the Olympics is just bad. Like it's, uh, aside from the feel good stories, which to be fair, they they can be very feel good, um, <laughs> are, uh, are, are just ugly, right? So why are we why are we stuck with the IOC? Why can't we have a worldwide gaming event that isn't run by the IOC? Because I, I feel like the best part of the games is watching the athletes and, and hearing those feel good stories and everything else is just I mean, I'm pretty sure the Olympics bankrupted Greece. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that that and, uh, you know, the EU's uh, horrible economic, uh, economic <laughs> policies. It's a little one two punch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, the two the two do feed into each other, right? Like, if you, if Greece had its own currency, it would never have been, would never have gotten into that that hole, and that was definitely a big part of, you know, the way the games, uh, like affected the Greek, uh, like Greek economics. But I mean, many have tried. I'll put it that way. But you know, the Olympics, both as like a cultural totem and a marketing branding opportunity and like one of the few things that has achieved some sort of international uh, consensus as like a thing that everyone can ostensibly participate in on an international level to the fact that they have so much money. <laughs> I mean, like they have <laughs> so much money, like they're, they're basically inevitable at this point. They are, they're a monolith. Like, you know, the, the USSR tried the workers Olympiad, there have been like alternative games held. There are, there are alternative games held every Olympics, right? Just no one gives a shit because those things don't have any sort of real financial backing or real economic power behind them. And the Olympics do. And as an even for athletes, right, which is where this all starts with, like athletes, especially athletes in non-major league sports, right? Um the only thing you're told from childhood because you start training when you're like three years old, right, is the Olympics. That's what your goal is. That's what your goal is to make it to. And it's like if the athletes decided to all divest and go somewhere else. They could. But unfortunately, like that, that requires a level of global organization that I would declare um, not impossible. But I would say that's a that's a multi-decades project. <laughs> I mean, the NHL has exited, but not for ethical reasons. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, what do you think? Um, what do you think an alternative Olympics would look like um, in an ideal world? Like, let's say we could wave a wand and just make it better. How would that look? <sighs> That's a tough question because, you know, I, I was having this conversation with um, someone from No Olympics LA, like the uh, the No Olympics organizing chapter in Los Angeles, which the No Olympics movement is international. And it's quite incredible, right? And the thing is, is like it it starts with land and there are valid questions around like, can you have an ethical international sporting event because of the level of secure uh, securitization and land use and you know removal of of people forcibly from their land right that it requires for these things to happen like my i i sort of disagree with their point my sense is you could right 
people have i'm trying to forget i forget the author but someone suggested uh sort of floating infrastructure so you know building temporary stadiums that could be prefab built and then torn down there's also uh an idea of like a permanent city for the olympics right say Bern for the winter olympics and um athens for the summer games right and you just keep them in one place and then that becomes like sort of a sporting mecca uh the issue there is that eventually all infrastructure needs to be replaced um especially stadiums which see high use high wear uh and with that many people coming in over and over again uh, or just sort of decentralize the Olympics and, you know, host different events in different places, right? But also that sort of denies the idea of, like, everyone coming together under one roof, which is one of the things, like, that gives people such the the good feelings about the Olympics, right? That's very, that those are the vibes. Yeah, I mean, they're doing that for the, um, the 2026 World Cup in, um, like, North America for soccer, aren't they? Something like that. It's going to be in a bunch of cities. They are. It's Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. all together. I think that that one's a little. I would say that one's a little different because, like, basically, it's it. What it really is is it's an economic ploy to, especially for Canada and the U.S. Right to just drive people to soccer because uh, there is like a growing soccer market in America, and this hypothetically should be the flashpoint for soccer blowing up there. It's one of those things where it's like, oh, it made sense because you got soccer crazy people in Mexico. You've got you have the U.S. and then you have Canada, which actually has some really rock solid um, soccer infrastructure. So it's like, oh, no, we can we can do this. And the U.S. is like a hugely untapped market for soccer, even despite its growing popularity. So, you know, they really want they really want that to be like the next level for fifa um because yeah the, you can't argue with that purchasing power right okay so it's decentralized but for the wrong reasons <laughs> yeah okay. I, I would say don't don't expect this every time <laughs> we, we can bring you back for a fifa episode when that comes up because i want to talk about them too <laughs> oh yeah fifa is um fifa is like a soap opera is like an evil soap opera that never ends <laughs> All right. We, I don't think we've talked so far about the environmental impact of the Olympics. I'm curious uh, about sort of, I assume it has something to do with the land use, but uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, like the Olympics, the Olympics is effectively a tool for mass displacement and gentrification. Start to finish, the Olympics are one of the primary reasons for evictions, homelessness, uh, destruction of neighborhoods, um, tearing up cities you know, like from police crackdowns in Rio to even things like, you know, in, during the Vancouver Olympics, like cops went undercover into anti-Olympics movements and helped provoke like and act as provocateurs during protests and stuff like that. The like crackdown on unhoused people during the Vancouver Games was horrific, like to say the least. And the Olympic Village, uh, which was supposed to be turned into low-income housing, Oh, it is not. I can tell you it right is now. Not, yeah. It is. I I live I live a J, I live Olympic Village adjacent, and it is maybe one of the most expensive places to live in Vancouver. Yeah, only only one only one building remains that was low income housing, and don't quote me on this. It may have been turned into a brewery. <laughs> that I mean that, that would be I don't classic know. Vancouver. Yeah, <laughs> that does sound like Vancouver. There's a lot of breweries in this neighborhood. Yeah, so it's like right there you've got you've got that. Then you've got the environmental impact of actually building these stadiums, right? Which by the way, do not get used after they're 
after they've been built. Like it's very rare that you see an Olympic stadium being used. I know like Korea did it a little better because they sort of turned that turned their stadiums by and large, not not comprehensively, but by and large into a uh, sort of like athlete training area. Um, but like even even for the Tokyo Games, right, a lot of their construction is now like really not being used um, in Brazil. Like it's almost post-apocalyptic when you see how they built different stadiums for different sporting events that are now just being reclaimed by jungle. Same thing with like Sochi in Russia. I don't know. I don't know what's happened to the last Beijing facilities. I, I haven't looked at that, um, but I haven't like, you know, I, I think that again, it goes back to my point, right? Like comprehensively, no matter who's hosting the Olympics, they're going to be a disaster. Um, but the fact that I haven't seen much fanfare around the way the Beijing facilities are means that, you know, whatever specific sinophobia the Canadian government or media is trying to provoke can't get them on that um <laughs> you know like like i i'm fully in favor of an olympics a boycott right it's just like the the methodology in which it's being deployed right now is uh, discomforting to say the least because it it's focusing on you know and uh, there are very valid things to be said about china's human rights record don't get me wrong but in regards to the olympics specifically it's being used as yeah it's being used as a as a political weapon against China and not as a argument for Olympic abolition altogether, right? Like the human cost of, of the Beijing Olympics is the same as the human cost of any other games. I think that that's something that like, you know, really needs to be set straight um, about the Olympics is no country can host an ethical Olympics and all of them have basically the same outcome for the people who are most vulnerable in those cities in those countries that they're being hosted in right those are that's money diverted from public service that's money diverted from municipal improvement the like line they built in rio uh transit line they built in rio is like awful you know because it basically connects rich neighborhoods to rich neighborhoods nothing else um and in fact it 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 continues to march it like split off the the poor parts of the city from from everywhere else so it's stuff like that where it's like you know yeah like beijing olympics completely unethical but the overall sort of crux of the olympics is they should not happen here like the same fanfare we're seeing around boycotting beijing should have should happen for every other game gotcha so there's like that bucket of harms that are related to basically any olympics that's being held and then there's also the sort of additional like concentration camps <laughs> you know aspect to the chinese games that makes sense yeah there's every there's everything else right and it's like very specifically the the games themselves just they need to be boycotted in totality right <laughs> and it's like yeah it's it's a cudgel it's a cudgel for this like sort of ongoing you know anti-china sentiment that's emerging right uh, a lot of which is valid but i think a lot of it is also perpetuated by warhawks who are looking for an excuse or a boogeyman you know i mean like it's and it it goes back to this fact that like the largest companies in the world like nike right speaking of the olympics has started moving its its manufacturing facilities to places like bangladesh and taiwan where because there's sort of like a less less even less oversight and you know countries in countries there are like you know it's a different form of slave labor yeah yeah, and that's sort of the stuff that I'm just like it's it's tough. Yeah, I mean like it's tough. No, there is, there are no good guys in this situation. 
Yeah, do you think the problem is just like this mixture of like sports as entertainment with sports as geopolitics that the Olympics brings? Um yeah, uh, like sports, sports are and always have been, you know, a politically motivated event, right? They're a mega event. They're one of the few mega events that still happens, you know, like, like really, uh, what else is there that has the same, like, we don't have world's fairs anymore. You know what I mean? That's true. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in a while. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but it's like, you know, it's, it, that's sort of exactly it, like, there is uh, obviously like a political agenda attached to games and how people react to the games. There's a reason that like there's so much, you know, there's a reason that like, you know, the Munich games happened the way they did. Right. Because everyone knew the eyes of the world would be there. Like if if the Russia Olympics were being held today, I think the sentiment around them would be a lot different than it was uh, when they did happen, even though even then, like. There was a lot of, I would argue, hypocritical criticism levied at at Russia uh, in the context of, like, you know, Western powers, um, extraordinary overreach over global politics and global economics and, um, and like, just the human life, right, and exploitation. You know, you're seeing a very similar thing happen with, with China. There is a lot of, you know, pot calling the kettle black here and things like that. And there's a lot of, like, you know, uh, willful ignorance towards the human cost of things like the games in Rio and the games in Sochi and even places like Pyeongchang and also the sponsorships, right? Like, the Olympics' biggest sponsor is Coca-Cola, which, you know, used to run death squads to murder union organizers, uh, you know, with the complete... Uh, if not endorsement, but just, you know, the blind eye of, of, you know, international governments and things like that. Like, I'm just pulling up the Olympic sponsors list right now. Yeah, it's like a it's like a real axis of evil as far as like corporations go, right? Like Dow <laughs> Chemical, Coca-Cola, Bridgestone, Visa and stuff like that. Right. Alibaba Group, uh, you know, which is I think they're one of the most valuable corporations in the world at this point and stuff like that. So it's like, yeah, like there's. Those are the like top sponsors. Those are the real top line sponsors. And it's like, oh yeah, this is just evil at every at every fucking level, right? <laughs> it's just evil all the way down. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize. I'm just looking now. The uh, Airbnb was just added as a sponsor as well, uh, alongside Procter and Gamble. Oh, oh Procter no. and Gamble. <laughs> <laughs> is there are there any sponsors on there that are not the epitome of evil? <laughs> See, like, there is and there isn't, because, like, you know, you can make an argument that Intel, Samsung, and Panasonic aren't, but also, like, I'm pretty sure Intel does, like, a lot of, like, security and defense contracting, right? Samsung effect uh, effectively has a stranglehold on the South Korean government because they uh, bring in around 4% of that country's GDP. Well, and we just did a whole episode on conflict minerals and how the entire tech industry is kind of... It's it's hard to get out of them. It's not like entirely the tech industry's fault, but it's also like entirely the tech industry's fault. So, yeah, and and the way the global so like you know the easy way to attack the environmental impact of the Olympics is like people fly there, but that's such a silly non-issue in terms of its environmental impact compared to who it's rehabilitating, what it's trying to sell, how it's trying to sell it. Like you know, there's the the rags to riches story and the feel good stories of all these athletes. And and don't get me wrong, I am not I am not clean of, of 
you know, crying during a good figure skating match, right? Like, um, I was watching the fucking three overtime Raptors game yesterday, and I was literally crying when the un- my favorite player hit a three because yeah, I knew the story. Yeah, that's part of why we like sports is, you know, you don't love it because you're watching, you know, you're watching superhumans excel. Like, that's part of it, but you're watching it because the narrative they craft is so beautiful and effective. Yeah, I'm a Habs fan. Their playoff cup run was an incredible narrative last year. <laughs> yeah, someone who grew up with the Leafs, uh, I had the opposite. <laughs> um, That's fair. That's fair. That was rough. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, It was very rough. Um, I jumped back on the bandwagon because uh, I'd given up on them, thinking like the league effectively made mm-hmm. it so that they had to make the finals that year. And uh, no, no, they, they, they did not. But yeah, like, yeah, that's sort of it, right? And these companies know exactly what they're doing when they sponsor the Olympics, when they sponsor athletes, when they, you know, like the internet. I used to work in advertising, never an Olympics campaign, unfortunately, although that would have been wicked to have an unlimited budget. But like, um, you know, like there's a reason Coca-Cola is putting out like these documentaries about athletes that are so inspirational and so nice, you know, and how Coca-Cola that don't even mention Coca-Cola at all. You know what I mean? Like, um, just at the end is like a little card or something like that, right? Or they, there's some charitable initiative that they succeeded from that Coca-Cola helped sponsor or something like that. So yeah, it's like, you know, that's, that's, that's a big part of it as well. Like Airbnb seeks to profit immensely from the games, especially in the fallout from the pandemic, right? Where people are traveling more and things like that. And, you know, that's another layer to the ongoing displacement that, airbnb and the olympics were already complicit in now they're colliding in like the worst possible way how many how many people remember waving flag and remember that it was attached to uh, uh was it the olympics or was it the world cup i can't even remember at this point i'm pretty sure it was the world cup but like you know waving flag uh which coca-cola licensed right and everyone associates uh i'm happy canon got the bag but like everybody associates that with um with coca-cola Right, it's a great song, that song. Yeah. Oh, it <laughs> yeah. absolutely is. No, don't get me wrong. He has not released. He has not really released music since that song came out, and I'm a hundred percent sure he's just living off the royalties of that song. Um, it's like you know, good for you, man. Like, there's a narrative right there, right? You grew, grew up in Somalia, uh, you know, refugee come to Canada, and next thing you know, your songs being used by Coca-Cola, recorded in a hundred different languages around the world, right? And everyone for the rest of their lives will be able to like hum will be able to hum the uh the chorus right and it's like that that's like real power right there and and everyone will think coca-cola it's funny the two most recognized words in the english language globally are, are the words okay and coke right <laughs> cool <laughs> what a nice world we live in <laughs> Yeah, it's so frustrating because what you just told us was like, it's actually an amazing story. And there's so many really beautiful stories that come out of the Olympics. And so it's so frustrating that it's built on this rotten foundation. But I feel like it's also like propaganda so so often. Like um, there's that new um, Netflix docuseries called Bad Sport. Oh, that's great. Bad Sport is terrific. It's so good. Um, the racing episode was so good. But um, we were watching the uh, Olympic figure skating, like Jamie Soleil, David Peltier situation. And I forgot how like anti-Russia and like white picket fences, 1950s Americana, that whole story was <laughs> like, that's wild. I don't know. <laughs> and we also don't see the human cost 
of the athletes that were left behind, right? Because like your odds of making it in any professional sport are it's effectively a lottery in some sports like the NFL and the NBA. Um, your odds are actually less than winning the lottery to play to go pro, you know, because there's what only 286 active NBA players at any given time or something like that, right? Like, uh, but you know, you have people who are training their entire lives to go to the Olympics. This is literally all they can do, right? Like, it's what you've been what you've been brought up to as a child. Like sometimes. In a lot of sports, especially the bigger ones, there are like elite prep schools and colleges that start at like the grade level, you know, um, that simply develop your basketball skills and stuff like that. And then the outcome of that is that your body is wrecked by the time you're like 30. Um, but also, this is what you've been bred in a lab to do. And because you're 0.02 seconds behind the next guy, you you've blown your chance. That reminds me of um, the Hunger Games. <laughs> Where, like, yeah, the, the first, the first like three districts that just raise their kids to go to the games and murder each other, and it's like, <laughs> oh man, yeah, you're not wrong. Yeah, it's 100% correct. And that's sort of the stuff where it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's really fucked up because for all the athletes you see at the games, there's like at least 100 athletes who were right on the the cusp, right? But again, like you're. The, the difference between the the highest level in any sport and the next highest level is is really is like measured in in milliseconds you know in the nba it's like measured in are you are you a quarter step too slow because if you are you don't belong here and stuff like that right it's like oh yeah like that is that is effectively chance at a certain point on top of like a lifetime of training it's that last little hurdle and it's like yeah, like once you're there, you know, there's a there's mental health crises up and down the world of sport. There's health crises up and down the world of sport. There's also like most Olympians have to bankroll their own way there, right? Most Olympians don't get the sponsorship. Most Olympians don't get money from their government to go. Most Olympians, like there's, if you, I'm sure if you go like Olympic GoFundMe, I'll actually Google this right now. Like this was something uh, my friend Jules Boykoff, who who wrote a great book called No Olympians, right? Where he uh, it's an ethnographic study of no Olympics movements across the world. He wrote extensively on this stuff, and that's one of the things he brought up is like if you Google Olympic GoFundMe, you'll see hundreds, um, because that's the only way they can get to the games. And the first thing that comes that comes up when you Google Olympic GoFundMe, yep, yeah, uh, support Canadian Olympic athlete Kevin Hill in 2022, Ryan's Olympic journey and beyond. Some of these are as recent as five days ago. Fundraiser by Cross Country BC, Remy Durlay's Olympic year, right? This is the only way they're able to make it. It's an expensive thing to train 365 days a year. And if you're not rich and uh, in Canada, like especially in the Winter Olympics, a lot of these guys are. That's uh, just how the chips fall for a lot of winter sports. But, you know, especially for the summer games and, and things like that, like, yeah, people don't don't have the the economic uh, upbringing or class background that allows them to go to the Olympics, right? Uh, and they have to do stuff like this and that's their dream. And they likely won't succeed at achieving that dream uh, if not for financial reasons. Again, because you're a second too slow, right? Yeah, those stories are like the underdog stories are always amazing when they succeed. But for every one success story, there's thousands of people who sunk their life and effort and all their dollars into trying to go and didn't succeed. Well, that's okay. They can all just go play college sports. I hear those pay really well. 
Yeah, if you're a coach. Um, <laughs> the Auburn uh, football coach just re-upped for 50 million bucks. Oh the God. players, of course, uh, do not get paid. <laughs> See, this is why I like silly sports, you know, like <laughs> for every person who's been born, bred and trained in like some of the higher paid ones. There's also like the curlers who like have beer bellies, <laughs> although they are kind of getting to be a bigger sport now. So it's, there's less of that. But curling may strangely be one of the more ethical sports out there. Um, it's funny because <laughs> swimming is a. Like swimming from water polo to, you know, distance swimming to speed swimming. Like, um, that is a hotbed of shit, actually. The the <laughs> list of FINA controversies is like seven feet tall. Yikes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to think of other underwater hockey. That's probably fine. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's tied to swimming. Uh, yeah, it's not an Olympic <laughs> sport. I don't know if it's a if it's a federation, but it's not an Olympic sport. So there's that, right? It already has one up on everything else. <laughs> so Abdul, as a fan of sports, I feel like we've just spent 40 minutes shitting on sports. What, like after all of that, knowing everything that you know, especially as an expert in this, what draws you to watch the Olympics, anyways? Like why why do you why do you still collect 350 sneakers? <laughs> I mean, the sneaker thing is its own is its own thing. If you ever want to do an, an episode on on uh, simple luxury being commodified into asset classes, uh, <laughs> I am your guy. Uh, that is my that is a hundred percent my fucking wheelhouse, right? Like, because um, like you know, sneakers technically should cost one hundred and fifty bucks, but they're they're because people can't afford stocks now, turn them into basically assets, right? Like proto NFTs. Uh, like, I'm not. I am ashamed to say, you know, I've spent up to like two, three thousand bucks on pairs, right? Like <laughs> that should have been that retailed for like 150 and things like that. Not anymore now that I'm uh, quit my job to write full time. But like, <laughs> um, yeah, like, you know, that's that's its own separate, separate like world. Right. But it's like, uh, you know, I'm I'm drawn to sport because I I'm very interested in the idea of what sports could be and also what they represent and especially the individual narratives, right? Like, um, like there is something really compelling about watching people who are quite literally the best in the world at what they do and how they got there. And the spectacle of like human achievement, uh, whether or not it's kayfabe, right? Like whether or not that's actually a, a realistic thing in the context of like, you know, rampant PED use among other things. Um, like it can be really beautiful, right? It can be really beautiful for the people who make it there. And it can be really incredible to see the, the stories that emerge from it and stuff like that. Like I've always likened sports as a whole to, you know, sort of like an anime. <laughs> like, sure, you can turn on a random game of basketball if you don't watch basketball and you, you can get engaged with it, right? But like for someone who like regularly watches a team or like follows the league, uh, you know, like they have the NBA subreddit uh, set as their homepage. Like, um, you know what I mean? Like you, you're engaged because you know, the narratives, the rivalries, the stories, the uh, placement of the players, like the placement of where the team is on the standings, what they need to do to get there and what they need to lose. Right. Like, or how they can lose and stuff like that. Like the stakes and the emotional impact of it is, is it's a gorgeous storytelling. And and that's really what the Olympics succeeds at. And that's one of the reasons it's so successful is because it's able to like craft such a such a, a hundreds, if not thousands of incredible narratives year after year. And 
it's it's also one of the reasons that like you know alternative to the olympics isn't feasible because you know an alternative to the olympics is ultimately an ethical choice but you know no one has been able to create or or actualize an alternative that plays into into the sort of narrative of sport in a way that is equally compelling right i also think that's one of the reasons like the the soviet olympiad like the workers olympiad you know didn't work because the the olympics as i'm not saying there isn't like competition under socialism like you know to friendly competition to see who's the best of something that's a fact of course there will be everyone wants to be better than someone else uh, in terms of their achievement that's not a bad thing right but like um you know in a lot of ways like those narratives actually hinge on on the exploitation that comes with the sport right because they managed to succeed in spite of those um in spite of the of the cruelty and in spite of the exploitations by the ways that like capitalism hinders people and that is really fascinating to me like you know it's it's almost like an understood part is that the reason these people are here is because they were better than the system that held them back and here's why and now they're competing against each other and you know one guy got one extra inch after failing his first two attempts in the high jump he got one extra inch and he managed to just sneak out the gold or like you know i remember uh, one of my favorite from the vancouver olympics was like the bartender who won silver and bobsled right and for canada and things like that it's like no it's wicked like he just jumped off his bobsled and crushed two beers you know what i mean it's <laughs> like yeah that's awesome or um you know, it's stuff like that. It's really, it's really engaging. You know, I think it speaks to something very primal for for us as people, right? Like the need to, to like both respect uh, a degree of like perseverance and work ethic and and skill on top of on top of just relate to like really excellent stories that you know are real, right? Or they give off the appearance of being real. Yeah. And then I feel like every sport has its own culture too, which I like. <laughs> like the snowboarders are very different. Uh, yeah, just a <laughs> absolute fuckboy. Like I, uh, yeah, every trip to Banff is, uh, you know, yeah. is an experience uh, for when you live in Alberta. That's also a big part of it, right? Is like the reason college sports are such a hegemony and stuff like that is because, and the reason they're such a vehicle for like reactionary politics is because they. I mean, this is sort of my theory on it. I've written uh, not extensively, but enough about it, right? Is that college sports, especially in small towns, you know, like Missoula and stuff like that or other places, like they effectively replaced the economic devastation uh, led by capital flight, right? Like you're no longer proud of, of, you know, the fact that there was a manufacturing industry here and that was like a committed identity, right? Like post-war, like everyone's come together to support the national good by producing, you know, this many widgets and stuff like that. It's the pride disappeared when capital left and, you know, was replaced by, you know, fentanyl and poverty and college sports are one of the few ways that people actually find that sort of like shared community. And then, you know, you just keep ramping that up because then it goes municipal right toronto raptors uh any city hockey team or or a sports team that goes national right like the the canada you know i'm i'm not really a big fan of you know canada for you know obvious reasons but like you know today at 105 um or today in two hours i will be watching the 
Canada USA World Cup qualifiers, right? I'll have I'll have that on one screen. On my laptop, I'll have the Bengals game. <laughs> it's like, and why why am I cheering for Cincinnati? It's because this is a, a first time they've made the playoffs in thirty years, and they've won two <laughs> games. And seeing the like happiness of the people of Cincinnati after suffering for thirty years of just being a nothing team, right? Is beautiful. Like that's a great underdog story. You know what I mean? Absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I lived in uh, lived in Toronto for about seven years. And part of that was during the Raptors run. And it was just like, yeah, I don't even watch basketball. But this is a great story. <laughs> you know, everybody gets their moment with a good narrative. <laughs> and that's sort of it, right? Like that, that Raptors narrative is is fantastic. Because you know, the, the leader of the Raptors, they traded away his best friend to bring in this other guy who didn't want to be here, but then like committed to the vision after coming back from a year of injury, they traded for a dude who, you know, his brother, he was traded for his brother when he was drafted and his brother went on to win championships while Mark was just like wasting away in Memphis. Right. And then he got a call from his coach being like, you know, we're going to trade you to the Raptors, go in the championship. And it's like, that's amazing. That's so sweet. Right. And it's like, it's, it's those stories that you're just like, Oh yeah, that really like gets, that really catches, catches your heartstrings. Right. And it's like, it's hard to, it's hard to argue with, the way that like you you really felt like you were part of something you know when everyone was watching the games like even in Edmonton which unfortunately is where I was when they won the championship uh they uh you know like I remember hearing fucking honking outside my suburban apartment like I could actually (laughs) hear people cheering and I lived in like the deep suburbs when they when they won the final buzzer run right it's just like oh this is unbelievable right like i never thought i thought i was edmonton's only basketball fan up until that point (laughs) yeah it's it's pretty incredible how it can draw like that's what's really cool about the olympics is how you know everybody in the world who's watching this is watching at the same time and cheering together so like that part of it is really really cool and i also like as somebody who's not a sports person at all uh, (laughs) I, i i see a lot of opportunity for community for men there that just they have a hard time finding other places because of lots of reasons mostly toxic masculinity but like (laughs) I and it's just such a shame that I don't know like not not to change the subject entirely but that so many leagues especially like in big sports have such a problem with misogyny and it's just like I don't know it could be such a beautiful thing like a bunch of dudes touching each other's butts on the field like let's (laughs) like go for it guys (laughs) And it's nice to see, like, you know, there's there is a new wave of like sports media and sports journalism that is like centering women's sport as well. And like the WNBA did a really smart thing by making their um their like all access league pass twenty five bucks a year, right? Which is That's like awesome, nothing. Yeah. Like I I subscribe to it. Yeah, you know, I don't watch as many games as I should. Uh, I will when Toronto gets a team. Um, but like that's great. Like just by putting in that twenty five bucks, it's like at least I'm like through the lens of capitalism, like validating this as something that should make money. You know what I mean? Like, yes. <laughs> and like, yeah, like my, my, uh, so yeah, like I, I write for, you know, television now, thankfully, but like I spent my twenties working at a labor union. Right. And, um, the two things I could always connect with workers on, uh, especially workers I'd never met before uh, were sports and smoking. Right. <laughs> um, it's like either if they weren't a smoker, I, you bet, there was a sport they liked and you bet, you know, I made it my goal to know everything about the major leagues uh, that were going on at the time. 
specifically so I could have a conversation uh, and stuff like that. Right. And it's like the sports is such an excellent vehicle for organizing, for pushing ideas of like labor, for uh, demonstrating the sort of inherent contradictions and cruelty of capitalism. Right. And it's like, I find that like, I find this isn't a fresh take by any means. This is a very boring take, but I find that like a lot of leftists, maybe just the terminally online ones um, often like uh, put away sports as like bread and circuses, right. Or like a purely uh, male operated project and stuff like that. I think a lot of guilty. You called me out. (laughs) I I think, I think a lot of it is that like a lot of the environment of sports culture isn't comfortable for female sports fans. I will say that like, uh, you know, I think there's a lot more than you might think. It's just not uh, expressed quite as often. But also just like, you know, they're they're a great way to open up conversations about things, right? Like the most visible wildcat uh, strike in North America since before Reagan was a, a sports strike. And that, you know, like the the linchpin of the current culture war started with Colin Kaepernick. Those things are so crucial uh, when you think about the sort of the way that sports like sports captures the eye of the world. Like no one took COVID seriously until the big four leagues shut down. Like I remember I was in Banff for a, for a work thing and I was going to fly on the following Monday to Toronto. Oh no, I was going to fly the next day to Toronto on on the Friday. And on Monday I was going to take my dad to his first uh, Raptors game, which was the, the first time the Raptors were playing the Warriors again after the finals run. Right. Um, and I was just like at, at the bar and I ran into a friend I'm just like, yeah, I'm leaving tomorrow. I'm going to watch the game on Monday. He's like, Oh, you, you didn't hear like it's canceled. And I'm like the game. No, he's like the league. Um, and <laughs> I, I like Googled it and I'm like, Holy shit. And then I, I remember I drove up to Banff two days earlier and I drove back the next day and it was like the entire tenor of the world. It was a five hour drive and the entire tenor of the world had changed. And it was it was specifically because all the leagues had at that point had by then announced they were shutting down. Yeah, I was um, I was in the middle of a move uh, and my dad was with me helping me. And we had stopped into like a sports bar because we had just driven my stuff like five hour drive. And we're like, we had no other place to get food. So we're in the sports bar. And like it was coming just as the announcement. So like all the leagues were canceling that day when pretty much everybody decided to cancel sports. And I was like, that was when it really felt serious for me. It's like, shit, sports stop for nothing. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's exactly it. And it's like, it's very, yeah, it's very telling, right? Like that, that is an incredible way, like sports are an incredible marker of like where the culture is at. And they also turn an incredible eye to issues that, you know, would otherwise be unable to be talked about or that like, you know, largely capitalist uh, status quo media will not talk about right but because sports are such a huge cultural totem like of course they're going to be obligated to talk about it and the way they talk about it oftentimes fans disagree with right and things like that like um and that's like you know specific athletes boycotting the olympics right like this a huge issues around like issues for trans people right and like just passive transphobia were really brought into the spotlight due to um, athletics and the way the world of athletics views like trans women and things like that. And, you know, very effective at like communicating like, ah, no, but still in like a very racist, transphobic uh, world. Right. 
And it's that sort of stuff that's like, oh, yeah, no, like like organizing sports is a great vehicle for organizing and, and talking about things because it's such a it's such a it's so compelling. But also be like more people watch sports than don't watch sports. And it's, you know, that means that it's a valuable thing that people aren't talking about. If you don't do it, someone else will. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really frustrating for fans. I know. I mean, it's not just the Olympics. It's it's everywhere. Like, if you look at who owns all of the major football leagues in Europe, it's like Saudi princes and oil conglomerates and whatever. So, <laughs> like, it just it sucks that something so that could be that's so big and that could be like that is often used for like good. It, it's just so frustrating. For, like, I want more fan owned leagues. Can we have that? Can we have more fan owned leagues? Uh, it actually happened in the worst way possible. There's a, a Twitch. <laughs> There's a Twitch league called uh, football league called fan controlled soccer, where you pay a membership and you get to like vote on plays and lineups and a bunch of other stuff like moment to moment. And it's sort of horrific. Like that's the stuff where I'm like, because there's also like the argument, like, you know, like the plantation system of college sports. Right. But then also like when you, when you sort of, and I understand the coach, sort of the managerial coach-player relationship, when you give control of people's bodies to something like that, it, it makes me feel icky. You know what I mean? Like, it's so weird. So it's like, there can be fan-owned leagues, unfortunately. Um, not like this. And uh, yeah, and there's like, <laughs> you know, like, it's it's funny, because in Europe, there's a pervasive sense that that you know, the big four American leagues are socialist, right? Because they have like profit sharing agreements to prop up the the small market teams and the way that their like trade system works and things like that is, effect- is effectively there to create equity. Whereas like, you know, the, the transfer system of, of um, Premier League soccer and things like that is very, very different. And it's very funny. It's very funny to think of the fact that, like, it, they're not wrong, right? But it's, it is, like, very much like socialism for the rich, but... Yeah. The NHL is unionized, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh, don't get me started on players' unions. Um, but, yeah, like... But, yeah, I, I think there is some sort of motive for, like... There is a, a way to do, like, a proper a fan owned league. That's not like, you know, the thing you always hear is the green Bay Packers, but that's more of like a joke. It's a certificate you own, right? Like, like certain teams are municipally owned Uh, in Canada. I think a couple of CFL teams are, I'm pretty sure the Edmonton Elks are a public private partnership. And I, I'm don't get me, don't quote me either the rough riders or the blue bombers are, are technically civically owned through some sort of public, public system. But yeah, like, I'm a big I'm a big proponent of public ownership of of sports teams maybe not fan ownership but like I I really do think they should be treated as like a municipal service because that gives you a lot more power over the ways that you can craft good urban spaces and good municipal power through sport right like it's uh, you know ways to incorporate things like stadiums into into um cities without them being like a gentrification gentrifying or dispossessing force or the ways that you can increase access to it or the ways that you can use that to draw more like more people in and sort of create positive economic conditions for uh the people in the city right like if sports teams exist to generate profit 
right? Like even with a hundred nine million dollar salary cap, the Raptors are still one of the most profitable teams in the league. And it's like, no, actually that profit just went back into municipal. That's a great trade off. Like you pay, a, you you spent three hundred million operating revenue, and if you get if you get four hundred million back, right? Like you've just added a hundred million dollars to city's coffers, and that's fucking incredible, right? Like. And the thing is, is like no one's. It's it's not a brave thing for cities to do because the the immense cost of buying in is so high, um, and it's it's deliberately designed so things can't happen. But I I genuinely think that's something that should be considered as part of municipal works projects and and civic projects because the the cost return is extraordinary. Yeah, I'm agreeing with all of what you're saying, but I'm also thinking in the back of my head, like how stupid municipal politics would be if like the Oilers were owned by the government. It would constantly be about like who the general manager was and whether like the mayor should fire the coach or whatever. But... Yeah, just treat it like a separate just yeah, I or just the federal government should just buy Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment and treat it as like an arm's length crown corporation. You know what I mean? Like There you go. Yeah. Yeah, like that like you you manage yourself uh, you know, whatever stupid pay raises you need but as long as you're generating a profit (laughs) you know you're good right like and it can't be like it can't it's not like any other federally owned services because again sports teams turn a profit like that is a hard fact you know i mean it's uh as opposed to you know oh air canada is not profitable right now and we're spending more than we're putting in where it's like you know let's make it a private corporation it's like that will never happen unless Unless they hire the worst general manager and tank for 20 years, that will never happen to the Raptors. Even in their worst days, they were minting money. So is that is that is that the best solution for sports? Just make them all just make them all publicly owned. I think for individual teams. Yeah, I like personally, I think sports should be like especially teams like I don't know what the solution for international sports are um, because it's so tough, right? Like it requires such a groundswell of change. And obviously, like when you're looking at 150 different countries, you know, the circumstances of what that looks like might change as well. Right. Especially since a lot of Olympic sports just aren't profitable outside of the Olympics. Like over four years, like no one's turning money and they expect to whoever does invest is expecting to at least break even or make that back as the when the Olympics happen. But I think there is like an interesting conversation to be had about public ownership of of sports leagues, things like you know, specific teams and stuff like that, like a genuine, a genuine move to that. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if Oklahoma city, for example, can pony up the 1.5 billion required to buy, to buy the thunder. There's just a staggering amount of money in sports. <laughs> it's interesting. Cause like, what is the biggest signifier of wealth in America? It's not going to space. It's owning a fucking sports team, right? Like you can be the richest person in the world, but the club of people who own sports teams is so small and so exclusive. And you need to be voted in when you make a bid to buy, like the other guys need to let you into that club. Like no one knew who Steve Ballmer was when he, was the CEO of Microsoft, right? But everyone knows him as the guy who's allegedly coked up on the sidelines of every Clippers game and how he how much how he paid like two and a half billion for that team, right? Now it's like it really is like one of those things where it's like, you know, the the real vision of success. That's also why like a lot of sort of immigrant billionaires buy sports teams as well, because that is that is the real like you've made it type of a American dream moment. 
there's so many billionaires in the world, unfortunately, uh, and decide from like, you know, the, the Elon Musk uh, thing, it's like the ones you know most about probably are, um, are the guys who own teams. Could we not start like a guerrilla movement where uh, like the city of Vancouver just starts a team and puts them in the NHL? Uh, so it costs, I think, I think the cost that you need to give to the NHL simply to option the idea of starting a team is 500 million. Oh, okay. <laughs> Could start with women's hockey, though. But then, like, because it's harder for women's sports to turn a profit, right? How That's long true. does it take and stuff like that? So it's like, you know, it's really you're just trapped in this very, like, interesting system. There are there are a couple of publicly owned soccer teams, but that, that has a much different cultural tradition than, than and historical tradition than, like, sports in North America. Right. I'm just looking up what are I'm just looking up a list of uh, publicly owned sports companies. Are there any in Canada? <sighs> OK, uh, Valor FC in Winnipeg, uh, Victoria Highlanders FC. These are fan owned. Sorry, these are fan owned sports teams. Here are the public sports team. No, those are publicly traded. Oh, yeah. They're also not mostly publicly traded. So like that's how exclusive the club is, is that they are. Sports are by and large, uh, specifically for the board of directors and the, and like the owner. You know, there's there's been some there's been some writing on like why cities uh, should buy sports teams and things like that. The thing is, is like if you're already in a in a debt crisis, the break even point is ten years ahead. But once you get to that ten years, you're you're rolling, right? But it's like just the upfront cost. Like, how much did Steve Bomber pay for the Clippers? It was like $2.5 billion, right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and they're a shit team, too. But he bought it from Donald Sterling, right? Uh, the racist uh, the racist landlord billionaire who whose explicit reason for buying this team and not really caring about the fact they owned this team for however long he had it was because he just wanted to own a team. Same thing. That's why Donald Trump kept investing in like minor football leagues, right? Because he wanted to buy an NFL team and they wouldn't let him into the club. And that's really <laughs> it. You know what I mean? Like that's really the like and it, it extends to every to every part of the sporting world, but especially teams. Like that's a huge part of it. Yeah, I'm curious about like because governments pour a bunch of money into sports. And I'm curious for your thoughts on what they should be spending that money on. Like, should it be sports, but just done differently? Or what do you think? Buy, just buying up local leagues? <laughs> I think support for local leagues, minor leagues, like those, it's those, uh, like minor leagues already have such extreme labor disparities and their margins probably aren't as thin as they say they are um but like yeah i mean like those that's an interesting thing because the cost to operate is i think low enough to justify it i think public private partnerships or just publicly uh publicly paid for sports stadiums are obviously the wrong idea i don't actually think i don't actually think private privately built stadiums are a necessarily bad thing they don't really cause an employment jump or an average wage increase around that. Uh, in fact, it's funny. Many sports teams will will average out the pay of in their in their proposition. I know Calgary definitely did this um, when they were talking about the average pay of workers in their new stadium, which may or may not be built at this point. I think it's a big no right now. Um, they averaged in terms of salaries. They put in player salaries to up the average of workers uh of how this would affect worker pay which is hilarious right because like that jump if you have a thousand people who are making like 15 bucks an hour and like six people who are making 10 million right the average jumps to like 
you know, 14 bucks an hour or, some, or, you know, 25 bucks an hour or something like that, right? Like, it's a pretty statistically significant, even though the numbers are so out of skew. It's hilariously and, and like, almost cartoonishly underhanded. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, yeah, privately owned stadiums. I think that, that municipalities should flex a much larger degree of control over where those stadiums go. And I think that, that there should be a, an expectation from municipal governments to say that like if you want to play here if you want to keep turning money you better give us some or at the very least invest in a certain number of like separate publicly accountable community projects right and things like that and a lot of teams do this through their charitable end right like mlse foundation or or the edmonton oilers community foundation or whatever right but like no don't make that pr thing take more money from them and force them in. And if they want to up and demand and move the team, you know what I mean? Like other municipalities can't say no. Yeah, I think uh, Daryl Cates was like trying to put the Oilers charitable, um, like the foundation's donations into his like arena bid uh, when they were looking at building the stadium. And it's like, <laughs> they basically just uh, buy up Oilers tickets and give it to people. <laughs> like. Yeah, like that's why you'll see in most games like the lower bowls are empty is because those are all corporate tickets that no one went to and stuff like that. But it's like, yeah, it's it's things like that that are sort of crucial, you know, like it is a, there's a, a not insignificant chance the Calgary Flames will move to Texas, right? Uh, or some other city uh, if this arena is not built, which it's looking like it will not be built now because the they wanted the government to throw in an additional 5%. And finally, the municipal government said, fuck you, uh, which is the <laughs> best thing, because they're already paying for, I think, 49 or 51. It was like something like that. Um, and the cost ballooned, and they asked for more money, and the money said no, and the ownership is now probably going to move the team, hopefully. Uh, there can only be one in Alberta. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, it's stuff, it's stuff like that, where it's like, when you look at like Oakland, for example, like the Raiders were a... The Raiders were a religion in Oakland, and when they upped and moved to Vegas in what I believe was the most ex- expensive stadium ever built on American soil, it is, if you haven't seen it, it's incredible. If you just Google Raider Stadium, you'll see it is like Allegiant Stadium, it's called. It is like, yeah, it is a wonder of the world as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. Like, um, more like when they, when they polled people about, whether or not Oakland should build a new stadium to keep the Raiders or whatever, people said no. You know what I mean? Like, like people saw through that and they're like, we love the Raiders, but that's public money. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, absolutely not, right? In a city like Oakland, which which suffers such an extreme class divide, like, of course, of course, um, people were going to be like, this is not tenable and this is not something we want. Um, and this is not like this is manipulative and you know, feel betrayed by the team for a number of reasons, not the players, but the people who own it. They understand they understand that and they don't forget that. Right. <laughs> um, so it's like, yeah, like, you know, if, if the flames threaten to pack up, you know, it sucks. Like, so be it. Yeah, you know I mean, but then like uh, something else hopefully comes in, fills the void and is like privately funded and someone else. sees the or, or the city of Calgary just decides we're going to own a fucking sports team. Right. <laughs> But yeah, like it's it's funny because in the States, uh, like Allegiant Stadium is probably going to be one of the last purely publicly funded stadiums in the United States. And Allegiant did it a little differently because they are actually they actually levied a hotel tax 
in uh, Vegas specifically to pay for the stadium. I think it's a $10 fee attached to every hotel ticket. Yeah, like that part is super interesting. Like the way Vegas paid for the stadium, I find intriguing because they know they know the cost benefit. I mean, Vegas is a very specific city. This isn't applicable to literally any other city, but like it stands to reason that Vegas will get more from paying for that stadium than what they eventually put in right? Just because of the way that city runs. Um, But the trend towards publicly financed stadiums in the US is actually dropping sharply. And they're, you know, capitalist sustainability is bullshit, but they're also being built a bit more sustainably now, right? And they're they're built to last a bit longer. But uh, in Canada, that trend has not changed at all, which I find uh, upsetting. You know what I mean? Like, we're just two steps behind uh you know that sort of stuff and it's like it's tough it's tough to look at like for example like rogers place uh, in edmonton which was it's like a ufo got dropped in the middle of town downtown i've been there a bunch of times and it's a spectacular <laughs> stadium right but like back in the before times like i was doing a, a photojournalism thing like i was doing ride-alongs with like crisis intervention teams at uh, boyle street community services and stuff like that and it's like it's very interesting to see, you know, one, not going to say he was underpaid, but one person who should have been getting paid a lot more for like the stuff he was doing, loading uh, clean needles into the back of a white van so he could drive around for hours, uh, just handing them out to people who needed them, right? Like right behind him, there's this like enormous stadium, right? And it's like, oh, like that is incredibly fucked up. Like, you know, they, they, the amount of people uh, of unhoused people that were displaced and the amount of like not even good not, not that gentrification is good but not even like effective gentrification because the ice district which was a whole stadium development that's currently ongoing right like i'm sorry no one wants to live in fucking edmonton there's no pride in saying you live in the ice district of downtown edmonton you know what i mean like you're not going to be toronto and they brought in like richard florida to consult and he should be in the hague Right. Like, um, like there's all sorts of other stuff around that development. That's just like deeply upsetting. And it becomes worse when you consider the city just gave uh, Daryl Cates like a blank check and said, you know, go nuts and, and, you know, whatever, whatever, we'll bring in whoever you want. And these bullshit public consultations that mean nothing. It's just, yeah, it's, it's very unfortunate. Like, you know, you see a bigger version of that around the Olympics as well. And the way that like cities, because they're on the hook for the Olympics, right? You think about the cost of building one stadium. Now countries and cities are building five to ten for what? Nothing. <laughs> I did want to ask um, Abdul how you how you feel about like own the podium funding by governments. Like, should governments be trying to win medals at the Olympics, or should they be just taking all of that money out and focusing on like I don't know, just having kids play games? <laughs> you know. I think it's tough um, because like I, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to ignore the poverty of, of many athletes and stuff like that. Even ones who win, who win medals. Um, yeah. I think that's like a very complicated question, right? Cause like most athletes, uh, especially in North America and, and Western countries don't get any support from their government. Right. Like the support that it, that was given historically was like a function of like cold war was a function of like, uh, you know, of the Cold War, right? Of Cold War rivalry. Like, there's a reason the the Russian government basically, uh, Soviet government basically created athletes in the lab because it was a way to flex on the world stage. That's why, you know, the basketball dream team in the U.S. happened because they were tired of getting their asses kicked at basketball by 
the Soviets and same thing with hockey, right? Everyone remembers the miracle on ice for a reason because, you know, they ended a decades long dominance of, of the Soviet hockey team. There's a great documentary on that called red army about like how the Soviets developed their players and like the, you know, labor, uh, emotional and uh, sort of economic outcomes of that. So it's, it is really tough, right? Like I don't actually hate the idea of like international competition, but like the the sort of labor questions around athletes need to be front and center. But then there's also a question of like, why not do both, right? Like why not build sustainable infrastructure and do municipal support, but also like make sure athletes can eat and that they're supported every step of their journey with like ongoing processes of like vetting and stuff like that. Like Cuba, Cuba produced the best baseball players in the world, but those facilities were available to everyone. In fact, like, you know, Cuba has a personal trainer for like every 12 people in the population, even during the sanctions and the famine in the 90s. That was a crucial part of the Cuban program was to make sure athletics is considered a a full part of like human development. And that is essential, um, I think, is like treating sports more holistically having those sorts of government run institutions that are able to like vet the best of the best, right. And also support them, but also make sure that the people who can't make it don't fall on their feet. Uh, it's a job, right? Like the, yeah, it's a, it's a job and it's labor and like labor should be supported. And when it comes to the Olympics, like athletes and anti-Olympics activists should be working hand in hand, but um, understandably the tact that most anti-Olympics movements have taken um, is to start, bottom up, which means that people in cities who are going to be displaced, right? And that's not an incorrect way to do it. And it's like, how do you take the next jump? Uh, No one really knows. It's very difficult. Um, (laughs) We could start by ending billionaires. If there was no more billionaires to own the teams, (laughs) the money wouldn't get so out of hand. It wouldn't be so hard for regular people to get, get on board with all of this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's like, you know, it really is like a cash rules everything around me situation. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. But like at the same time, you know, with the Beijing Olympics, I think my biggest takeaway from that is that they're they're no no means more or less ethical than any other Olympic Games. Like the Olympics institutionally are a are just a failure, a, a staggering human failure and a staggering point of, of global exploitation. Right. That like seeps into every level of how we function as a global society. Um, which is like crazy to think about, right? Like that's what mega events by and large are. But I, I really do think, and again, this is where I break from the orthodox uh, thoughts of many uh, anti-Olympic people. Uh, it, they don't have to be this way. <laughs> you know, a lot of people see this as like, see it as like deterministic and you can't really blame them that this is just inevitably going to happen as long as these sorts of mega events continue to be held. But I, I think there is a solution. I just think the solution is more difficult to reach somehow than abolishing the Olympics entirely. Yeah, that's fair. So what should um somebody listening to the podcast, uh, what should they do to get to make sports more ethical, I guess, even if it's OK to watch the Olympics because it's probably not going to change? <laughs> um, that's a good question. You know, I, I've never it's actually a question I've never thought about. <laughs> what can the average person do? I mean, Really, it's uh, like my my go to would be like use the labor struggles of sports like the MLB lockout is happening right now. Right. Uh, As an avenue to open up conversations about unionizing your own workplace and build labor power, which uh, uplifts all of us. Right. Like 
that, you know, everyone says athletes are overpaid, but, you know, my question is they're actually underpaid for how much profit they generate and like, why isn't everyone else getting paid more? Those are, I think, I think sports is a great entryway into conversations. I think it's like worth doing what you can to, to support, uh, uh, even if it's just verbal support things like player strikes. Right. But yeah, big one is, is support people in your community for sure. But also like, you know, it's, it's about, developing relationships that allow you to access people and allow you to have difficult conversations about the way sports are currently organized. And it's, it's tough because it's so like the distance between, you know, you and I on the shop floor and the people who, who are in the executive box of the arena is so enormous that almost feels like nothing can change them. Um, But you know, the one thing sports have been really good at recently is uh, kowtowing to public pressure. (laughs) <laughs> um, you, know, uh, you know, I hate I hate to say like tweets work, uh, but in this case, that might actually have been not a bad thing. Um, that's sort of where where I would say start. Like, you know, um, stop paying for minor league games; they're very exploitative. I know uh, I'm a hypocrite with that, but like, um, support community owned teams if you can. Um, and yeah, like, really, it is it is through action, right? Like, like unionizing your own workplace using sports as an entryway into having those conversations about labor are a big thing because you know the good things about sports and especially about athlete power can really serve as an example for everyone that affects athletes and that affects the way we look at things like municipal spending the way we look at like the way money sort of travels the globe in service of these events and who it serves and stuff like that and also like sort of tying in, you know, you can have interesting conversations about nationalism too, right? Like I do not love Canada, but again, I uh, am definitely cheering for that team. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah. And I guess also maybe supporting organizations like the right to play that help inclusion in sports could be a piece of the puzzle. Yeah, for sure. Like supporting, supporting women's sports is really important as well like supporting marginalized people in sports like you know it the it's interesting the paralympics uh the paralympics always happen very few people watch them but if you ever cancel them there would be a public outcry right you know organizations like right to play are very good but like it's not just about the right to play it's about the right to thrive that that is i think the a big part of it is making sure that like that people are supported at, at every step of their athletic journey. And that is that is also crucial in that people have, uh, athletes have fallbacks and they have opportunities beyond, you know, simply playing. That is super, super important. Um, and yeah, like also like tapping into communities, right? Like the reason these, the reason sports are great, you give, you get an amazing community and you have something to root for and that's crucial. And like, it really is like a way to, insert ideas right one of the reasons um i think my writing you know uh, has been well received is i don't even think it's particularly good but i think you know i'm able to or i was able to distill a lot of academic stuff that my friends who do sports academia have written about into stuff that a lot of people can be responsive to right like i had a piece in jacobin about the nba's drug testing policy that a lot of people like messaged me about were like hey, like, this is something I never thought about, right? And this is something I never considered. And yeah, that was really fucked up. Is that where you see your approach as a journalist, like bringing um, through the lens of sports, opening up those wider conversations? Or Yeah, like I, I exclusively write 
um, about with the exception of like the media criticism from, you know, four years in film school and uh, career as a screenwriter. Like I am my my only goal in terms of writing about sports is to write about the intersection of sports and politics um, on a level beyond uh, and like conversations deeper than the ones Kaepernick opened up, which were extremely valuable conversations. It's like I, I'm also on like a hiatus from journalism right now. It's like one of those things where like I'm. Uh, it turns out you can work as a screenwriter, but really is like feast or famine. <laughs> um, so like once my uh, I'm working on like a network show right now and uh, a couple of features I got hired to write. Once those are done, I'll probably take a step back and restart the podcast and start writing about um, start writing editorially more and more. You know, who knows when that might happen? Hopefully March. But like um, that's always been my priority and stuff like that. And that's you know I think there needs to be more people in that space, but they are coming. Right there are a few right now uh you know some much much better and bigger than i am and there's going to be more right and that's fantastic like those are the things that we need to talk about within sports and that add actually add layer of complexity to the narratives that we all love great well i think that's a lovely place to end this episode i really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us abdul i've learned a lot about my own rhetoric <laughs> and uh and i i actually i think i owe my partner an apology for making fun of the racing one f1 <laughs> f1's incredible by the way i you you have to watch you have to watch drive to survive on netflix to get a handle on the narrative and then next thing you know you'll be waking up at 4 a.m to watch you know the Bahrain Cup or whatever. Yeah, F1 is spectacular. Um yeah. So so I I'm going to I'm going to go apologize to him right now and uh I I know I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. I I learned a lot. This was supposed to be an Olympics episode, but the the breadth of knowledge that you have on just the the sports industry as a whole is really valuable and uh yeah, I I'm really excited to to put this out for our listeners right in time for the Olympics. Everyone can watch them i guess there's nothing that boy like in order for a boycott to work we'd all have to do it and when that's not going to happen so <laughs> you know en enjoy your figure skating and nothing else and, uh, <laughs> and abdul where can people find you yeah the pretty much the the best place to find me is um is on twitter i am at marks gasol m-a-r-x gasol g-a-s-o-l nice <laughs> call out call out my favorite basketball player of all time mark gasol um yeah i have work in in jacobin canadian dimension um briar patch i've been writing a lot for a new outlet called uh, music movies hoops which they've been fantastic to work with and they pay their writers and it's uh, really check them out they're lovely um, and uh, yeah, I also write for the screen. Uh, I have a film uh, coming out in cineplexes across Canada in May called Peace by Chocolate. Uh, I have another feature shooting in July uh, called Queen Tut that you know I just turned in my last draft Friday. And I'm currently currently writing on a show called Transplant for uh, NBC Universal and Bell. And there will be an episode I wrote out at some point this year. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Nice. Oh, wow. You're really busy. Thank you for taking the time to sit with us for like two hours. We really appreciate it. <laughs> Amazing. Well, everyone should check you out and all of your stuff. There's lots out there. So we will link to a bunch of it. And listeners can, of course, find us on Twitter at Pullback Podcast. Or you can find us on our next episode, which will be like next week i mean we're re-releasing old episodes so just you know tune in all the time to hear our lovely voices <laughs> thanks everyone we'll catch you on the next one